Investec UK. I've known him uh, for the last seven, eight years since he started working out here at Investec. Uh, he's a regular commentator on the um, uh, economy, and I always wonder how frequently he writes um, on uh, various news flows over the last several years. So it's always been very interesting to uh, hear, hear hear his views um, on on various topics. Um, and uh, usually, uh, this, uh, especially out here in India, we refrain from uh, hearing too much of. Uh, uh, importance to specific events that have happened globally, given that we've, we've looked more in general towards our own issues and uh, our own uh, uh, numbers. But I guess over the last couple of weeks, uh, several events have really uh, caught market attention uh, towards what's happening elsewhere, especially in UK, uh, uh, in the last uh, uh, two weeks. Uh, and so in that context, we thought it was useful for for all of us to hear what uh, Philip has got to say, what is picked up in the local market. And and so what we've done is we've, uh, we've designed this event uh, to have to cover four broad topics. The first is generally Philip's view on the Fed fund rate and uh, why the view is a little bit more dovish than most of the um, uh, commentators and street expectations. The second is to get a bit more uh, insight into the uh, recent UK fiscal management and the uh, pension pension fund crisis as they're now calling it. Uh, and the third is to understand the long-term rate expectations and uh, where we're headed. And lastly, if um, Philip uh, uh, could speak a bit about financial contagion and whether the uh, news flow, recent news flow around credit fees in Deutsche Bank uh, uh, is, is more noise than substance and whether uh, they should get passed by um, as the uh, uh, share prices and the CDS spreads settle down. Uh, so to begin with, I'm going to hand it over to Jen. Um, uh, he will uh, ask Philip a bit on the effect on rates and then I'll take over. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, Karthik. Uh, welcome, Karthik. Uh, so as uh, Karthik has already highlighted, the first question basically we want to understand is, uh, the markets are betting of another 125 basis point hike this year, followed by, let's say, another 25 basis point hike next year. As we internally, our expectations is closer to 4% what Fed can Fed is likely to do this year, followed by cuts next year. So, so the basic, uh, what we think more likely is Fed is likely to pivot slightly sooner than what markets are expecting. So could we just uh, probably look at what economic data from our viewpoint, where do we see uh, what factors in these cuts and how far can basically Fed, Fed, how far can Fed go to keep on raising price before they actually pivot? So your views on the same would, would, would be very helpful. Okay, thanks very much. Hello everybody and, and thank you for your time late on in, in your day. Um, I've actually managed to escape the UK for the past couple of weeks. I've been in the States, so um, I've, I've been uh, sort of looking at information out of the US. But um, we'll talk about the UK in a sec. But absolutely, looking at the, where does monetary policy go is, is, is obviously a massive question for the global economy in, in the US. Um, why are we more dovish than the market? We're not much more dovish. Um, you know, what we're looking for is another 75 basis points of tightening. I don't think that the Fed is going to pivot. I think that it's just going to reach a rate where it says, well, we're going to wait and see. And it just waits and sees for quite a long time. Um, and then we think that you know, through the course of next year, the economy will be sufficiently weak, inflation will be sufficiently low for the Fed to start saying, well, um, we will, we'll, we'll start cutting rates. So the question at the moment, though, in the meantime, is that we, we have um, the Fed funds target range at a restricted level. The question is really how restricted do you want to be? So the Fed regards a neutral level are of the Fed funds target to be two and a half percent, the current range, as you know, is three to three and a quarter percent. Um, one factor that we think is often overlooked is that quantitative tightening is happening. And at the moment the Fed is allowing expiring bonds uh, not to be um, replaced on its balance sheet to the extent of $95 billion per month. Um, 
what is that word in race terms? Well, nobody knows for sure, but most Fed estimates suggest that you know, that pace of QT is probably worth about 50 basis points in tightening. So, in effect, you can add that 50 to the current um, Fed funds target range. There is also talk about active sales um, as against balance sheet runoff. That would be where the Fed actually goes into the market and, and sells some of its treasuries um, or RMBS, etc., uh, to the market. And that would, of course, add to the degree of restrictiveness. Um, so, several questions, really. Number one is, is the economy running away with itself? Is it extremely strong? Well, the answer is no, it's not. If you look at the headline GDP numbers, we'd argue they're a bit misleading for Q1 and Q2. What we're seeing is two contractions in a row on a quarterly basis in the economy. Now, we'd argue, I think Wall Street analysts would argue generally that you've got distortions there from both inventory bills and net trade. If you take those two out of the equation, you, you get a better impression you're left with you know, what we know as final domestic demand. Um, in the second quarter in year-on-year terms, uh, that was growing at 1.3%. So once you've put volatile items out, you've got 1.3% year-on-year growth. Now, that's not particularly strong. Now, we might argue that in the third quarter, the economy could look a little bit more robust, but really... The bottom line is that the economy is not running away with itself. If we look at the inflation numbers, okay, we've got headline CPI at 8.3%. Um, that is not the index on which the, the Fed looks at its inflation objective. That's something called the PCE index at 6.2%. Core PCE, arguably more important, at 4.9%. Everybody looks at the inflation numbers via the CPI prism. And, you know, that's the way our forecast is done as well. So let's just look at the inflation outlook um, from that perspective. In number one, as we've all noticed, global energy prices are down sharply over the past few months. And that will have a big effect on gasoline prices on um, through the inflation numbers. But also, there will be a very direct effect on airfares as well. And the airfares are an item which will feed into the core figures, the CPI and the PCE numbers. Second point is that what we term idiosyncratic factors are normalizing. Um, second-hand cars, especially the new cars as well, if you looked at second-hand car price inflation nine months to a year ago, that was running at 40%. That's not the case anymore, but it's still, they're still rising by 10%. And we would expect those car prices to actually begin to fall, and that will add to the disinflationary um, picture through the CPI numbers themselves. Another factor is house prices. Um, demand, if you look at the great majority of metrics on activity, it's cratering. We did have a, a, a pretty strong new home sales figure um, a couple of weeks ago, but the big picture is it's in trouble. Um, now, if you're looking at it from the perspective of inflation, um, rents, um, for some quirky reason, are about 40% of the core CPI. So that includes rent um, and owner's equivalent rent. Now, the weakness of the housing market is, in our view, bound to impact on house prices. And we've had that view for a while. Um, and therefore, you'd expect that link to be transmitted through on rental prices. And funnily enough, what did we see in the last set of house prices for July? We actually saw the first um, reduction in month-on-month -month house prices for the first time in around three years. So, you know, that weakness of activity in house prices is beginning to transmit itself. We are, we're arguing through house prices. Um, last, you can look at a number of factors, but just one more point is food prices. Um, there's been a sharp decline in food commodity costs. Um, corn is down, wheat even down more sharply, it's down about a third since the peak in May. And once you factor that in through the um, natural food prices, but food um, at home as well as the US CPI, um, our end 2023 CPI forecast is around 2.5%. Now, um, you translate that into a PCE number, you're probably fairly close to 2% there. Anyway, so in our view, just looking at the monetary policy outlook, um, there's a lot of talk about the Fed having to move uh, and keep on moving. Our view is actually there's not that much further to go. 
Um, we think we're going to get something like a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting, um, possibly tapering down to a 25 basis point increase in December. And then we think that the signs really on the economy and inflation will be sufficiently soft, not for the Fed to start easing, of course, but just say, look, we've got policy at a restricted level. Don't forget the QT still happening as well. Um, and then we, we see something like a, a nine-month pause um, until the, the Fed um, begins to ease policy towards the back end of next year. Now, the risk of this, we think, is that the labour market, which remains strong, uh, will result in wage growth either staying high or increasing further. If you look at the two main measures of, of, of wages, which most observers look at, that's the hourly average earnings with the employment numbers, um, and the, the quarterly ECI numbers, they're, they're looking at around 5% or a little bit more at the moment. But certainly if you look at the monthly figures, it does look as if the peak wage growth has passed. Um, and if we're correct about the economy softening, then um, what you should see is, number one, demand for employment falling back, perhaps participation in labour market rising, which should dampen wage pressures by more labour supply, and all those metrics will change. Um, and the last thing that I would say is that the Fed is very worried about wage growth exploding and leading to a longer-term inflation problem, which would be much more costly um, to tidy up. But actually, inflation expectations, for example, if you look at the University of Michigan survey, have encouragingly been coming down over the past few months. So, yes, of course, there are risks. Of course, there's uncertainty, but... Um, our view is that you know, we, we, we may be 75 basis points or so away from the top of the cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the thing. The second question, what we what we want to touch upon is basically on what's happened more recently in UK, especially on the, the, the new government coming in and announcing a whole fiscal policy, uh, which has basically caught the eye of the market and also the, which has led to a so-called pension crisis, uh, with yields triggering, with yields spiking up in the past month in September, which has led to an intervention of Bank of England to calm volatility. If you could touch, touch upon the same and explain to the audience what is basically the gravity of the current situation on fixed income markets, due to the recent fiscal policy, fiscal announcements, and what is your view on inflation and on the whole in the UK? And, and if I may add, so in addition to that, um, uh, have there been other vulnerabilities that the Bank of England has identified in addition to what has sort of cropped up over the last week or so? Have there been other instances where some of the unusual derivative exposures and positions has come to light, uh, which could potentially lead to a, a bigger uh, issue in terms of uh, contagion. Sure. Okay. I'll, I'll answer the last question first. Um, not to my knowledge, nothing's come to light. It's really um, the, the pension situation which the Bank of England uh, felt compelled to act um, last week. And um, in terms of the, the, the wider UK situation, there's, there's a lot going on. So. I'll try and compress it to a relatively short answer. And of course, if you'd like to ask some questions, you're very, very welcome. But um, you know, we have got a new Prime Minister. Um, we haven't had an election. Um, the previous Prime Minister, as you know, Boris Johnson, uh, was forced to resign. And uh, through um, an internal selection process within the Conservative Party, uh, we have now got a new Prime Minister in his trust who has um, appointed the former Business Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, as her Chancellor of the Exchequer or Finance Minister. Um, now, this is something that we have been warning about for a while because um, this trust has been talking about um, a move away from economic orthodoxy in her economic policy. And it's been pretty clear that markets have been concerned about that. Um, we've seen sterling falling back um, even um, before what we've seen over the past fortnight and interest rate in, in expectations rising. Now, there's, there, there's a, there are a lot of problems here, and I'm, I'm quite happy to talk you through it, but the, the, there are two main issues. Um, the, uh, the government prefers to try and raise the rate of growth via a big easing in fiscal policy. 
it believes that that will stimulate the supply side. Um, you know, what you have at the moment is monetary policy being tightened. So we've got, number one, um, interest rates still rising. Uh, number two, the Bank of England is conducting quantitative tightening um, to try and soften demand growth in, in the economy. Fiscal policy is pulling in completely the other direction. And, of course, what markets have concluded correctly is that if the government were to stimulate the economy by uh, a huge amount, and I'll talk about numbers in a sec, um, that will result in much tighter monetary policy. Um, so, it, to our view, it's not particularly helpful if you have got the two main arms of economic policy pulling in diametrically opposite directions. And the second main point is that you know, the public finances are not conducive to a big fiscal easing. The number of times I have heard governments around the world saying, yeah, we're cutting taxes or increasing spending, it will pay for itself from higher growth. I mean, really, I mean, it, it, it very, very rarely happens. And so this will have to be paid for, the, 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 the tax cuts, at least so far, as far as we know, are completely unfunded. So, you know, how much um, are we talking about in terms of um, measures? Well, the big measure is um, an extra support for um, households on higher energy costs. So in the UK, um, we all have to heat our houses for about six to nine months of the year because it gets cold. 80% of buildings are heated by gas. And gas, I think, accounts for something like 40% of electricity generation. And gas prices have gone wild, wildly higher. And what we had in April was a 54% rise in um, utility costs, like electricity and gas. And given the, the pattern of uh, energy futures, we were going to get a further 80% increase in October, which would have caused a, a massive cost of living crisis in the UK. So what the government's done um, is instead of providing targeted support for needy households, it's basically said we are most all of that um, energy price hike. Um, in other words, we are going to subsidise the energy companies. So it's Energy prices are effectively the, the average utility cost per annum is going up from £19,1961 and it's being capped at £2,500 and the government will make up the shortfall to pay the energy providers. That, that's going to happen for at least two years to households, at least six months for business. And, and the other Parts of the fiscal package which were um, announced a couple of weeks ago is that we were going, we're going to see a cut in a national insurance levy, effectively income tax, but paid by households and employers by one and a quarter percent, and a six percentage point increase in corporation taxes being cancelled. Now, there, there are other measures there as well, um, including the intention to scrap what we call the additional, the highest rate of income tax. Uh, which is at the moment 45p instead of 40p. Now, if you look at the total cost of those measures, over we, we reckon over the first couple of years the fiscal easing is about £70 billion, um, which is considerable. That's about 4.5% of annual GDP. Um, if you look at the numbers in, in five years' time, because the energy measures are supposed to be temporary, you, you're down to about £45 billion, but it, it, it's still big. Um, the state of the public finances, in our view, does not warrant um, a fiscal um, loosening of that magnitude, and indeed markets have agreed, which is why you've seen this, this massive spike up in um, rise in the yield curve. Um, really, markets completely lost confidence in the government over the past fortnight, and if I look at the pension issue specifically, um, what's happened is what happens is that your yields rose sharply. Now, typically, um, what happens, um, and I'll, I'll try and cut this quite short because it's quite complex and lengthy, um, but there are two types of pension in, in the UK. One is defined contribution, where you put money into a pot, you get your pot back when you retire. The other is that employers provide defined, defined benefits, um, and they, when you retire, pledge to pay you a sum related to your salary, um, for your retirement period. 
Um, and what firms have to do is that they work out actuarially how much this is going to cost, and they buy assets to try and pay for that cost and hedge out their exposures. Typically, firms don't manage to um, hedge out all their liabilities. They run pension deficits. And so, normally, rising bond yields helps pension funds. What happens this time uh, is to do with the fact that firms use derivatives in hedging their liabilities. Um, and what happened was that the volatility, implied volatility in the options they had, rose um, so much that they faced huge margin calls and they didn't have the cash. So it would have led to the collapse of those pension schemes. So it's pretty technical um, and, you know, pretty, um, you know, it's pretty complex. But similar to um, effectively energy hedging in, in Scandinavia, uh, which we saw something similar break out about three or four weeks ago. Um, so what the Bank of England has done is that it said, okay, we, we won't do active quantitative tightening over the next couple of weeks. We will buy some longer dated gilts over 20 years maturity to get confidence back into the markets, reduce volatility, those option prices come down, and therefore um, that reduces the risk of pension fund insolvency. Um, so it was a, a bit of a quirky um, a quirky episode. The Bank of England actually dealt with it extremely well. Um, one would hope that um, that will help to reduce these future bouts of volatility. So we hope this is just a temporary storm. The Bank of England is just buying gilts for two and a half weeks. It actually did buy many gilts yesterday. Haven't seen today's numbers yet. So, yeah, but this is what, what happens when you get extreme volatility in markets. And you know, it's, it's another major embarrassment to the government that the, the BSE &E had to step in there. Um, so, essentially, what we have um, is a bit of a recovery because of the Bank of England intervention. What we've also had um, over the past couple of days is the pound also recovering too. And it reached 103 three and a half against the US dollar, which is, is, is a record low, uh, below the 1985 low, 105. Um, and it's part of the, the, the rise in sterling and the confidence in UK markets been brought about by a U-turn over um, early Monday morning on that cut in the um, additional 45p rate. Um, good for high earners, sends the wrong message to the voters at large, Conservative MPs made it clear they wouldn't vote for it. So the government's done a U-turn on that. And there's been a, a, a rally, not because that £2 billion it would have cost is symbolic in the grand scheme of things. Remember, you talk about 45 billion in, in five years' time. But it shows that perhaps there is a check to what the government's doing. You know, that it, 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 MPs will keep the government in, in some sort of order, largely. But still, what you've got is a massive fiscal easing, um, and we do think that um, the Bank of England will have to raise rates, you know, perhaps up to about 5% um, in order um, to quell inflation pressures because of the, the extra demand injected into the economy. Whether that prevents the UK from falling into um, a recession, i.e. fiscal policy, we doubt it. We, we think there will be a mild recession um, brought about um, towards the, the end of next year. Um, so that, that, that's really, um, i tried to sort of give you a potted summary of what is quite a, um, a multifaceted and complex situation. Yep, thank, thank you, Philip. Just, just follow up on this. So, uh, the two and a half weeks of Bank of England, let's say they've come out with the 65 billion pound, which looks unlikely they're going to utilize at the moment. But you think uh, this measure would need to be continued for some more time to reduce volatility? No, I suspect that it won't. And, you know, what we were seeing was crisis in confidence. And when you see a sharp sell-off in an asset, quite often you get the doom loop where um, selling promotes more selling um, and panic in the market. And I think the Bank of England has acted very quickly and very effectively. And it sends the message to markets that actually we're not going to allow um, dysfunctional markets to continue. So, um, as, as he's quite rightly said, the Bank of England hasn't bought as much as it's um, said that it, it could do. Um, the scheme will end on the 14th of October, 
And we suspect what's going to happen after that is that the Bank of England will actually start selling gilts as part of its quantitative cycling programme. Um, but in, 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 a, in a very measured way, um, banks said that in a year it will expect to sell actively in the market something like 80 billion of gilts. And, you know, that's roughly speaking about 10% of the gilts it holds from its quantitative easing portfolio at the moment. Uh, so this is the next question or the next topic which we would want to come up on is uh, on the U.S. 10-year G-Secret expectations. Is like, what are your views on the long-term bond yields and how the markets are viewing the current yields as the, as the new normal? I mean, I believe the U.S. 10-year bond yields have slightly eased off from the 4% level we saw earlier in this week to about 3.6% right now. But uh, over over the next, say, three months to about a year's time, how do you think uh, both inflation and growth, do you think they're going to moderate faster than what streets are estimating and which is likely to lead to lower 10-year lower bond yields? Yeah, um, absolutely. We've, we've now got 10-year yielding a little bit above um, 3.5%, 3.50. And our forecast is that we're going to go down to about 3.25% by the end of this year. Yeah, not a huge retracement, but you know, by the end of next year, uh, we're looking at 2.5%. Um, and, of course, that view is consistent with our outlook for both the economy more widely and, and monetary policy specifically. And... Um, as I said, we, we don't think that the Fed is going to tighten policy quite as much as, as, as the curve is pricing in. Um, also, we suspect that the Fed may start to begin to ease monetary policy at some point late next year. Um, obviously, um, that on its own, you know, if we were right, would, would encourage bond yields to fall. Um, on the inflation side, um, you'd expect break-even yields um, so, you know, that's the difference between conventional yields and tips or real yields. Um, not convinced that the Fed is going to hit its 2% objective over the medium term. Uh, we expect that to correct over the next year um, as inflation falls. Um, and, you know, don't forget that there's a lot that goes into bond yields as well. As you've quite rightly pointed out, markets are very volatile. And you've, you've had something like a 40 basis point reduction. Um, in bond deals over the past week. So anything can happen over that time frame. And, and don't forget that, you know, we, we weren't far off 2.5% um, a couple of months ago during the early summer. So I, I think the, the main you know, justification for the views, of course, as I said, is, is, it's the economic view and monetary policy view. There are also other things that, that, that get pushed into the... Um, bond prices and bond yields. Um, one of the messages I get is don't get too drawn in to you know, what the current rate is because as we've seen you know, throughout this year, um, those yields can, can change very quickly and, and very radically. Thanks, uh, Philip. Um, just a last one from RN before we open it up for uh, the audience. Uh, I know you've mentioned that there wasn't any particular vulnerability that was exposed within the UK financial system post the entire episode. But uh, there were other other such news flows that have hit the screen, hit the, hit the uh, print on uh, Europe, particularly uh, two of the major banks. Uh, CDS spread going through the roof, in fact, higher than the GFC uh, levels. While I know you are uh, not a banking expert per se, more a policy man, but uh, would be useful if you could uh, throw us some light on how the entire um, uh, share price and CDS movements, particularly for CS and uh, Deutsche Bank, are being perceived within the financial markets. Yeah, um, I, I think that's the main point, really. I'm, I'm, I'm not a banking analyst at all. I don't regard myself as an expert. So anything I say is really an outsider's view. Um, I guess even though I'm, I'm, I've, I've seen many episodes of this before, I, I, no, it's, it, it, it's very difficult. Um, obviously, um, Credit Suisse is, is a Swiss bank. Um, you know, we, we, we look at what happens to its or to U.S. banks' operations, and, and actually, its U.S. arm uh, passed the Fed stress test 
uh, this year very, very easily indeed. I think under the Fed severely adverse scenario, um, had something like a 15% capital ratio now. So no problem with, with the US there at all. Um, I, I really don't know um, very much about the internal workings of, of, of Credit Suisse, particularly in Switzerland. Um, one fact I, I would say is that um, all central banks have been very careful to ensure that banks are well capitalised, and particularly Credit Suisse is a globally systemic bank. Um, so, under very close scrutiny. Um, so, I was surprised by the, the events and, you know, looking at CDS prices and commentary we've seen on social media and, and now the newswire. Um, but typically, it's not cap- a lack of capital which causes a bank to fail. Um, it's really um, lack of liquidity. And, you know, the, the regime has very much changed since the global financial crisis um, and central banks are you know, very um, aware um, that sometimes they may need to add liquidity very quickly. And, you know, we talked about that in the context of the UK guilt market um, just now. So, um, you know, I'm not an expert. Um, I would, you know, very much doubt that, um, you know, you, you're looking at something really um, severe with Credit Suisse itself. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that, you know, individual instruments aren't vulnerable. So, you know, it's this regime that's different, you know, this is your guys' knowledge on the banking system, that, um, it, you know, banks can survive, um, but individual instruments, as I say, may, may, may be vulnerable. And that might be where we are. But I, 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 I really don't know, and, you know, Prices anybody to see that movement in the CDS price. Thank you. Um, I think yeah. I, I think that's uh, that's from our end. Uh, participants, if you guys have any questions, you may please uh, raise your hand, and um, uh, we will we'll try and get it. Okay. Uh, so we have one from the gather. Uh, uh, why don't you unmute yourself and then uh, go ahead with your questions? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so my question is that I understand that the Fed has really never stopped hiking the Fed rate until it goes above the CPI. So are you expecting the CPI to come below the Fed rate of 3.75, which you expect to be the terminal rate very soon in 2023? Uh, or do you expect that they will stop even if they are uh, for some more time? And also given the fact that the Fed got a lot of flack for starting the rate hikes much later, so now they need to be, there's a lot of pressure from them to be a little aggressive. So why do you think they will stop at 3.75? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, that is a rule of thumb. Um, but, but I think the problem with rules of thumb is that they, they don't always apply. And that's, we really think that this is one of these cases where you've got a number of very unusual factors pushing inflation up at the same time. Um, and it, it would make, you know, to our minds, relatively little sense for um, the Fed to carry on raising rates and, and, until the, the two profiles collide. So at the end of this year, I'm trying to remember our forecast on the headline CPI. We've got about 7% coming down to around 2.5% by the end of next year. Um, so if they were raising rates at, a, say, a pace of 50 basis points, then so where would you get to? You'd probably get to about five 50 basis points every six weeks, some, somewhere around that. Um, yeah, useful rule of thumb, but I think I would be um, a bit low to stick to it this time. And FOMC members actually have warned um, about the risk of over-tightening, about doing too much. And you know, what really matters to the Fed isn't so much what the CPI is doing now, CPI rate, because that tells you how far prices have increased over the previous 12 months. You know, what the Fed is more concerned about is what inflation is going to be over the next 12 months, and arguably more importantly that the subsequent 12 months after that, i.e. the inflation rate in two years' time. And, and if you're seeing a big trend rate fall in inflation 
and the economy is not strong and arguably weakening, then um, I think that, that calls for a terminal Fed funds rate of um, 4% or, or slightly below. And, and certainly, yes, um, you, you're right that the, the Fed is at the moment, um, because it's taken so much flack for starting the hiking process too late, it's erring slightly on the side of over-tightening. Um, so, you know, it, it's front-loading its monetary policy. But um, there, there is no limit to which it will do that. And, you know, I'll make the point as well. Don't forget the quantitative tightening. Arguably, that's adding some 50 basis points to the overall start of monetary policy. Just to add, because it also means what you are saying that they're going to, the terminal rate will be way below their own dot plot recently announced. Yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely right. Um, but if you look historically, the dot plot has, has actually been a really poor guide to medium term um, rate movements. And, you know, we, we've, we've sort of plotted that time and time again, you know, particularly um, in the you know, 2016 to 2019 period, you know, the Fed was saying, yeah, we'll, we'll hike rates by um, three times a year. No, um, it really didn't manage that. And, you know, by um, 2019, um, yeah, the end of 2018, it wasn't foreseeing anything like a rate cut over the, the subsequent 12 months. And indeed, in, in, in July, um, we, we got the rate cut. So, yeah, I, I think we, one should look at the dot plot because it's showing the Fed's thoughts and its intentions at the time. But, of course, circumstances can change. And, and that's really what we're saying. Just like lastly, so what do you think is the probability that they stop at 4.25 or 4.5 and what's the probability that they stop at 3.75 which is your base case? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that the risks are skewed towards the upside, but, um, you know, do you think rates are going to get to 5? No. Um, do we think they could get to 4.5? Yeah, if you see um, either the sticky inflation numbers or um, the payroll numbers remaining very strong and, you know, that's going to encourage a climate of caution on the Fed in terms of um, worrying about wage growth. So, yeah, I mean, if you're looking at a range between, you know, three and a half to four and a half, then, you know, we'd probably say um, you know, 45% chance of three and three quarters below, 55% chance Above, but with a median case of, um, or modal case, should I say so, of um, 3.75. That, that's the bottom end of the range. But as I say, don't forget the QT in there as well. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. We have another question from um, Kaulish. Uh, why don't you unmute yourself and go ahead? Yeah, hi. Thanks, guys. So, Philip, just a follow up on the same question, what just. Uh, Mr. Gillard just came up with. So, uh, just to keep a, a base scenario, in 2008 on the GFC, closer to that, we were about 4% on the CPI, wherein the rate, Fed rate was closer to 5%. Today, where we stand, we are about closer to 8.5-9% on the CPI, and the Fed rate, what we are still seeing, as of as of last one, is about three quarter. So, I I, I got your uh, analysis on uh, the last question where you're seeing about 3.75 as say. But uh, do you still think that we can stop here? Because dot plots, as you mentioned clearly, they've moved about 100 bits in the last last two times. And uh, they are very dynamic in nature. And second thing, uh, mainly uh, what I want to just get from your perspective is more than rates, uh, the whole story about demand collapsing or the inflation coming down is about the QT. What we are seeing from September is a 90 billion thing. So if I extrapolate that for about a year, it's still only 900. Wherein we started to unwrap from $8.96 trillion. So that's about only $1 trillion in a year. So still there is enough of ample of liquidity into the system, even if we see about a year's time, right? So, do you think that Fed should go about increasing the QT, choking the supply and the demand, and that will, in turn, result the CPI to come down? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, um, and, and some Fed members have, have 
time was this? It's about six to nine months ago, I think, perhaps a year ago, um, talking about changing the mix um, between the um, reliance on interest rates compared with um, using QT and using more QT. Um, I think on the, yeah, um, I certainly um, take your point about the 2008 situation um, and that a stock rate of three and three quarters is, is relatively um, relatively low compared to that. Um, but you know, where, where did we get to in 2018? I think we, we reached um, a peak in the Fed Fund's target rate of about 275. Um, and, and that's the, the post-financial crisis um, new world where um, rates are um, lower than they were before the crisis, and you know we've taken that into account in, in, in the forecast. But yeah, it really depends very much on the trajectory of CPI in the short term, and, and also the employment numbers as to you know where the Fed is confident in stopping. But I don't think they'll use some mechanical rule of saying, well, inflation is still higher than the um, the Fed funds target, so we've got to keep going. Uh, it, it's going to be much more of a forward-looking um, operator. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really a question on QT. Um, yeah, you could get something like a, a trillion off the balance sheet. Um, the Fed is, is quite aware that back at, um, I'm trying to remember my dates, but I think it's about September 2018, um, there was a shortage of bank reserves, um, and that's because banks have tended to hoard reserves because they can't afford their liquidity coverage ratios. And what you saw was a massive tightening in, in U.S. money markets. And accordingly, you, you saw big spikes in repo rates, for example. So the, the Fed is now a little, lot more aware of the, the change in nature of, of, of the reserves, i.e. the counterparts to the Fed's balance sheet, is what banks hold out the Fed. And, and in our, we did some calculations here, and we think that, you know, at just a hun- under 100 billion a month of QT, then the Fed could keep that going until about 2025, I think we suggested. Um, and then there was an internal Fed study as well, subsequently, that, that came up with about the same date. Um, so it, it can't get to zero, and the balance sheet has to be bigger than previously because at that point, because of greater use of reserves. So um, the Fed, nature of the Fed's balance sheet is changing. And I think if you, if you look at comments from the Fed, particularly in the last cycle when it was doing QT, not so much now, it, it kept saying no, that the balance sheet is, is, is going to be bigger than it was pre-crisis. Um, and so it, it's likely now for the same reason that the balance sheet has got to be bigger than it was um, before the, the start of the evening in, in 2019. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I think the Fed is uncomfortable with the size of its balance sheet and I would like to get it down more quickly, but it doesn't want to disrupt the markets too much. But there, there is a limit to which it, it will want to, to shrink its balance sheet. And at, at those sorts of levels, we think that QT, you know, if it carried on doing it, would, would naturally stop in 2025. And just one follow-up on this. It's on the base case of 3.75, where we're looking in 23. Uh, if you could just extrapolate this to the DXY, where do you see or what can you have a view in terms of where you see the DXY moving or staying at a approximate ballpark number. Okay. Um, yeah, we don't um, do an explicit forecast for the, the, the DXY, um, no, not least because it, it doesn't include the yuan. But, um, yeah, I mean, our basic scenario is, you know, we've seen King Dollar operate for, for quite some time. Um, when the economic cycle turned, we, we think that that sentiment in foreign exchange markets will swing as well. And there are lots of concerns about non-US currencies at the moment. We've talked about sterling. Um, Euro, the euro is, you know, also under fire um, because it's vulnerability to natural gas prices. And it, it's, it's not something that the, the US faces. Um, the US is actually a, a natural gas exporter. But you know, from a position of parity at the moment with the euro, and the euro is the biggest um, if you like, the, the, the biggest part of the DXY. Um, we'd see it remaining on the parity for this year, um, perhaps the, the euro climbing to about 110 
by the end of next year. Um, so looking at sterling, um, we wouldn't be surprised if sterling goes below parity before the end of the year. But the fact that the government looks as if it's going to be less dogmatic perhaps reduces that risk now. I think what happened very early on Monday morning was, was, was pretty significant. Um, but, you know, I still think sterling is a sell in the short term because of the, the, the poor fundamentals. But, you know, we've got a forecast of 105 uh, sterling against dollar by the end of next year. So, you know, the risk is, I think, that that is higher, you know, frankly, given what's happened this week. Um, with the yen, well, you know, um, Bank of Japan actually intervening um, to support it. That, that, that's... <laughs> That's quite something. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we would see the yen um, strengthening over the medium term. Um, end of this year, 140, next year, 130. A big driver there, by the way, is bond yield differentials. Um, and if you think that U.S. yields are coming down, then, you know, that's, it, it's difficult to justify a weaker yen against that background. So, yeah, we're looking at a stronger yen at 130 in 2023. Thank you so much, yes. Do you have any follow-up questions? Yeah, I had a follow-up. So I understand that there is one view uh, that uh, because the U.S. banks had excess liquidity up to almost two trillion dollars, uh, part with the Fed, uh, something it's at least a, billion, a trillion of QT or something even as high as two trillion of first QT will not have much impact because that QT will be neutralized. Banks just withdrawing that excess liquidity they have with the Fed. So, you don't seem to agree. So, if that you believe that QT really the first trillion or maybe even the first two trillion really does not have any impact? Um, on liquidity, that's right. That There are two ways of looking at QT. The, the first, you say, is, is through liquidity. And if the Fed withdraws too much, then you see tightness in money markets, which you know, the, the Fed... Um, will have to intervene in, and, you know, that's what we saw in, in towards the back end of 2018. The other impact, of course, is um, if you look at the upside of the balance sheet, is on the bond side. And, you know, what you've had during the QE period throughout the Western world was a huge amount of bond buying, and central banks were by far the biggest buyers of sovereign bonds and, and indeed, mortgage bonds in the States uh, worldwide. Um, when once that reverses, what you have is upward pressure on bond yields because, you know, not only do you not have that buyer, you've actually got a, a reasonably large seller getting rid of bonds. So you have a greater supply of bonds and, and less demand. So the main tightening of the main economic channel, I think, that QT works through is through that bond channel where it tightens financial conditions by raising bond yields rather than through the liquidity channel, which for quite some time doesn't have an impact on bank liquidity until conditions get very, very tight. Um, so in the economic textbooks, very liquid banks will go out and lend and you, you get what's called the high-power money multiplier. But really, in, in, in the current world, the constraint on that lending um, is, is huge through, for example, capital requirements as well. So in that case, capital requirements override Money multiplier, high power money multiplier arguments. So those changes in liquidity don't have as, as big an effect, if any effect at all, actually, um, as on the economy as uh, the change in bond yields. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yes, we have one last one from Kavish. Uh, do you want to go on with your question? Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, Philip, uh, uh, thank you for the meeting. One last uh, thing which you would like to share with all of us, how do you think uh, anything we kind of missed out from a risk perspective in the current scenario, if you could like to share something with us? Or, or just to add to that, any potential events that you are keeping an eye on over the next couple of months to three months in order for us to uh, work them closely? Yeah, um, and clearly there's, there's a lot going on um, in the energy space. And, um, you know, what we've, we've had is continental Europe 
um, buying and storing gas, um, particularly Germany, um, because um, of um, a lack of Russian gas to buy. And they, they have to get through the winter. As I said, you know, it's um, sort of um, obvious for me in the UK, but in, in perhaps slightly less obvious elsewhere, when it gets really cold, you need an awful lot of gas to keep people warm and keep the economy going. Um, and so that is a big driver, but gas prices have fallen sharply, even term gas prices, indicating that that process may be um, sort of well past its peak. Um, the final thing I share is that we've, we've been talking about big changes in asset prices, you know, perhaps hiding um, a, a distressed institution. I don't know whether that's the case or not. But, you know, what I would say is that it's not so much the change in the actual asset prices. Quite often it's the volatility of the market, which has a, a much bigger leveraged impact on derivatives. And, you know, that, that's what we've seen, you know, with the UK pension funds we talked about and also um, the energy Providers in, in Scandinavia a few few weeks ago, where it, it, it's the volatility that can be a lot more dangerous than just the change in the asset price. Fantastic! Uh, thanks, thanks for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure as, as always hearing you out, and we look forward to meeting you again soon. Thank yeah, you. Look forward to it too. Thank you very much. Thanks.